Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second lecture in my series entitled For Courtesan, Queen and Gallant, The Guitar in England from Henry VIII to Samuel Pepys. I recognize many faces. Thank you very much for coming back. To those of you who have come to a lecture of mine for the first time and wonder what you're getting yourselves into, welcome to you. And a welcome also to the internet audience, because this is the first of my lectures that's being simultaneously delivered and broadcast live on the internet. But before we go any further, let me introduce the musician who's going to play for us, ladies and gentlemen, Taro Takurchi. <laughs> We're standing right by the edge of the Thames. The year is 1545, the weather probably is bleak, and there's a cruel wind coming off the river. Our task is to ensure that the hold of each ship that arrives contains exactly what its master claims is in it here at Three Cranes Wharf, where we've decided to take out our place. Now, many of the commodities we can expect to find in these ships will be relatively expensive, even luxury goods. You see, Tudor England does not have, at the time in which we find it, a consolidated reputation for producing finely finished things. Its exports are mostly uh, in the form of raw materials such as cloth, honey, tin, rabbit skins, alabaster, pitch, flax, things like that. Well, among the imported goods in the shipments we're looking at today are various musical instruments because some vessels have come in from Amsterdam, the city that is serving at this time as a kind of international um, entrepot for the dissemination of musical instruments into England and elsewhere. Searching through the holes, what do we find? Well, clavichords, boxes of harp strings, lutes in their cases, literally by the dozen, packets of fine strings needed for the top strings of lutes called minikins, because they were associated with manufacture in Munich, vials and virginals. Well, with all those instruments duly listed, we can move on to the great wealth of other material that's coming in this day. Astrolabes, cotton, cloves, combs, chessmen, frankincense, French hats. And you can see I've not got any further than the letter F. You'd also see that we didn't find any guitars. Now, in case you're wondering why I feel entitled to suppose that there weren't any in those shipments on that day I asked you to imagine, the answer is fairly simple. I've looked at the printed book of rates that Henry VIII's government issued in 1545, listing the duty to be paid on each kind of commodity. And you, you may remember from my last lecture that the standard name for the guitar in Tudor England is Gittern. Well, it simply doesn't appear in that book of rates I've just mentioned among the commodities on which duty was to be paid. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that none were being imported, as you can imagine. It was quite beyond the resources of Tudor government with its quills, candles, and bundles of paper to make a complete record of what was coming in on the ships. 
But I think the absence of the word gittern does imply that if any guitars were being imported in 1545, then the quantity was as yet too small to make the revenue you could collect on them for the crown being worth the cost of collecting it. Now, the first page of your handout lists what we actually find in that rate book of 1545. And as you can see, there aren't any gitterns. What there are are clavichords. The word is often written clavichord in the period, as here. A box of harp strings. Lutes with cases that by the dozen. Lute strings called minikins, a term I explained to you a moment ago, the gross. Vials each and virginals. Well, that's not the end of the story. In the year 1558, so we've moved on a little, Philip and Mary, who are now on the throne, issued a revised list to keep abreast of price rises. And now the guitar appears. And that's the second item on your handout. As you can see, we've got. Uh, and the, the valuations, you see, have gone up considerably. Clavichords, six and eight now, as opposed to two shillings. Gitterns, there they are, the dozen. Lutes with cases called cologne lutes, the dozen. Lutes with cases called Venice lutes, by the dozen, and you can see they are much more rated much more highly. Lute strings called minikins, by the gross, vials, single virginals, and double virginals. Well, that marked increase in the sums relative to 1545, reveals a substantial rise in customs dues, an increase actually of about 75% overall that was part of a minor revolution in royal finances in the period of uh, Philip and Mary. Some of the new entries, don't you think, are obviously intended to secure higher payments on goods at the luxury end of the market. Venice lutes, for example, now yield much more subsidy than the cheaper cologne instruments, a benefit to the crown that the older and simpler classification that we started with didn't secure. In general terms, that's why the later list is longer than the earlier and more discerning. But the guitar remains the exception, the guitar remains the exception, for it's the only kind of instrument in the later book, 1558, that's not in the earlier volume. Lutes, clavichords, harp strings, vials and virginals had all appeared before, but not guitars. Now, to be sure, I'm sure the inventory from 1545 was probably inadequate when it was published, just as the 1558 version cannot have been complete for the reasons I mentioned earlier. It's quite beyond the resources of Tudor officialdom to make a comprehensive record of that sort. But taken as they stand, don't you think, the two books imply that a new or newly invigorated supply of guitars was coming into the port of London by 1558, and that if we'd been standing at Three Cranes Wharf in the time of Philip and Mary, doing that job of inspecting the holds that I started you off with, we'd have found some. Well, the idea that guitars were relatively new in England at that time, and I pursue this because when people find out that I'm interested in the history of the guitar, the first thing they tend to ask me is, when, are the oldest, when do we find the earliest guitars? Of course, it depends what you mean by a guitar. If you mean something with a figure-eight shape and a, a handle on it, so to speak, that you pluck, you could go back to Assyrian seals, I mean, well before the time of Christ. But if you mean something that really is what we're talking about as a guitar, then this is the time when we first find them in England. It's in the 1540s and 50s, and that agrees really very well 
with a remark in the autobiography of that extraordinary Tudor musician I introduced you to last week. Many of you perhaps knew him already, Thomas Whitehorn. Remember I explained that his autobiography, which is now in the Bodleian Library, in manuscript, only came to light uh, some years ago. It was not known for a very, very long time. And in it, he reports how when he was a, a youngish man in London in the late 1540s, I quote, I learned to play upon the gittern and sittern, which two instruments were then strange in England and therefore the more desired and esteemed. St the sense of strange there, I think, is not only just unusual, but also, of course, foreign. The guitar was still a foreign and exotic instrument at that time, which accords rather well with the period when it turns up in those royal port records. Now, after that, guitars stayed in the printed books of rates under that name Gittern until the end of the 16th century and even a little bit into the 17th, but we'll pursue that later in the course of uh, lectures, where I hope I will see you again. The, uh, your handout does show a page from the rate book issued under, it's the third page of the handout, in fact, issued um, under Elizabeth I this time. I thought you might be interested to see what one of these rate books actually looks like. <clears throat> you can see on the left-hand side, we begin with girdles of velvet, ungilt, the dozen. Then it says girdles, look more, look more in woolen girdles. In other words, there's another uh, entry that you should look at. And then four lines down, we get gitterons, the dozen. There they are. Um, the use of so-called black letter type, which gives it that very formal, rather gothic appearance, was widely used, of course, for royal documents to indicate royal authority, which this does possess, that what you're looking at was issued by the Elizabethan government as an, a, an official document. And incidentally, as far as I can tell, but if any of you can find that I'm wrong here, it would be handy to know, this seems to me to be one of the few pages in the book where the compilers have achieved what we would now call alphabetical order. Much of the time, the clerks didn't look, achieve that or didn't attempt what we'd call alphabetical order beyond the first letter or sometimes the second. Alphabetical order throughout the letters of a word was an administrative innovation, an exertion of rational powers, you might say, that Tudor clerks were surprisingly slow to make. On the whole, I think this page seems to be what we would recognize looking at it as alphabetical order all the way through. There may be an exception or two, but I haven't spotted them. I don't think we should go any further before hearing a guitar of the period and hearing music of the period. So here, from Taro, is a, is a Paduana called Au Jolie Bois to the beautiful wood and a galliard from a source of the 1550s published in Paris. Thank you. 
you may, you may remember, if you were with me for the last lecture, that the poet Ronsard in the 16th century makes a reference to a guitar marked en chiffre, in cipher, with his name and his lady's name. And you may also recall crossing the channel to England, Edward Courtney's Zifre, taille sur une guitare, um, a, a cipher carved on a guitar. That's one of the ways, I think, in which we can conclude that some of the more luxurious instruments were really inlaid with abstract designs, monograms, because there are no surviving examples from the period we're talking about. Uh, like fine boxes or elaborate purses, these really could be things to possess. The workshop of a Parisian guitar maker, for example, in 1589, contained guitars adorned with marquetry and with a carved head both luxury features designed, don't you think, to enhance the pleasure of ownership. Instruments without either head or inlay were listed simply as guiterna commune, sort of common guitars, and were of less value. Now London, as I'm sure you can guess, supported one of the most cosmopolitan markets in the Tudor period for, for far, foreign goods in Europe, to the despair needless to say, of conservative commentators. And the instrument makers of France and Spain would have found many customers here in London for their work. Sometime we follow the fashion of the Frenchman, wrote Thomas Bacon in 1543, while another time we have to have some trick of the Spaniards. The guitar was one such fashion or trick. And modern replicas, often for reasons of cost, of course, tend to be um, more plain, but maybe very fine. And on the second page of your handout, you have um, a, a photograph of a modern replica, not the one that's being played today, made by Alexander Bartov. And I, I hope you can agree with me that uh, the design of the thing, which of course is a contemporary design, Alexander Bartov wouldn't claim credit for the design himself, though he would, of course, take credit for the finished article and should do. It is a, a seraphically beautiful design to the eye. You can see that the frets, uh, as if, you, if you come up afterwards, Taro would, of course, be delighted to show you uh, the guitar he's playing. You'll see that the frets uh, are not actually inlaid. They're simple uh, bands of gut tied round the neck which you can move, which can help you if you've got a, a tuning problem. As you go further down the neck, you'll see some frets do actually appear on the body of the guitar. Then you get, of course, to the rose, the central elaborated sound hole, the pride of the instrument maker. It is, I think, a, a very, very beautiful design indeed, and it's a pleasure to own such an instrument, yet more of a pleasure to play it. And that is always, ladies and gentlemen, deep down, the thing that has always intrigued me so much about stringed instruments, really since I was a child, it's not just that they can be so beautiful, so light and fragile to hold, and that they are made of natural materials, it's the fact that on top of all that, there's a voice inside to be released. That seems to be a marvellous thing. And to be honest with you, if I don't sound too naive about it, I've never got over it, and I'm still enjoying it here now. So who owned such instruments in the Tudor period? This is what really interests me, as you hope you can tell. This is a social and partly a musical history of the guitar. I want to know who played, where, when, in what circumstances. Who are these people? How was it part of their lives and how did it matter? Well, you could make a beginning with Henry VIII's last victim, the courtier poet Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey. And you have a picture of him on the third page of your handout. He was executed on Tower Hill 
for high treason in 1547 as part of a, an ugly campaign, I think, against his, his family. I can imagine the scene, really, of Henry Howard divested of most of his clothes, apart from his linen shirt, but not, I suspect, divested of his deep aristocratic pride that comes very, across very clearly in much of the poetry that he wrote. He was a very prolific poet and he's much studied in English courses in, in universities here. But as uh, soon as he'd been executed, you can imagine what happened. The government swept down upon his home to uh, inventory everything he owned and see what could be taken for the benefit of the crown. Well, I've, I've been through the document in the National Archives now at Kew and I turned over a few pages and it was there right in front of me. He owned the Gittern listed with various necessary implements such as hangings, tapestries and cushions. So it's a rather pleasant thought, really, that this remarkable Tudor poet was also a guitarist. And a surprising number of his poems actually have musical settings. There's a whole article there to be written, a whole book. Someone more clever than me will write it one day. Now, in 1532-3, Surrey had spent a year at the French court with the bastard son of Henry VIII, Henry Fitzroy, Henry, son of the king. Both were accepted within the intimate circle of the king, Francis I. Was Surrey's guitar a gift from those days in France? I rather suspect that it was. Seven years later, after Surrey's death, a ciphered guitar, the one I mentioned earlier, was passing between two high members of the English court, Edward Courtney and Peter Carew. I said when we last met, and I'll briefly say it again, a subterfuge like that of having a ciphered guitar that means something special to your co-conspirator only makes sense if it's really quite normal to see a guitar passing from hand to hand. You wouldn't really want to put a secret message on something that someone was like to say, oh, that's interesting, let me have a much closer look at that. No, you wouldn't want to do that. So I think the fact that it was used in that way suggests that guitars must have been quite common at the Tudor court. In the year 1554, uh, which is the year when that ciphered guitar comes to light, the court, royal court, also lost a man called Philip Van Wilder, who was the keeper of the royal instruments, a composer, and the musician, I think you may have shown all Tudor courtiers what the guitar, guitar could accomplish in the most accomplished hands. He's almost certainly the subject of anonymous elegy for an expert string player named Phillips, published in 1557. And you have the text on the fourth page of your handout. Yes, at the top. The poet calls upon all musical instruments to fall silent now that the master, Phillips, is no more. And this is what you have and I'll, I'll do it in my Tudor pronunciation. It is one of the things that I teach in Cambridge, and this is a chance to actually expose it to normal people. Which is, <laughs> Bewail with me, all ye that have professed of music that, by touch of chord or wind. Lay down your lutes and let your gitterns rest. Phillips is dead, whose like you cannot find. Of music much exciting all the rest. Muses, therefore, of force, now must you rest your pleasant notes into another sound. The string is broke, the lute is dispossessed, the hand is cold, the body in the ground. The lowering lute lamenteth now, therefore, Philip's her friend that can hear touch no more. So the, the guitar is one of the instruments that is told to keep silent. 
And it's very tempting, I think, that this major court composer, Philip Van Wilder, uh, played the lute but also took up the guitar. Now, this is a common pattern, really. You may have spotted when Tari was playing that in addition to strumming, and you may have noticed how much louder the guitar became when Taro strummed. These instruments are superbly equipped to yield a kind of kick when you, when you strum it. The soundboard is often fairly robust, the barring underneath rather light. When you give it a kick, it responds. But most of the time, of course, he was plucking with the fingers the flesh of the right hand, and you, it must have sounded very lute-like to you. It does. And the guitar was regarded as a diminutive of the lute. I'm quoting a 16th-century French author when I say that. It's a diminutive of the lute. So you learn to play the lute, which is your big instrument associated with a very prestigious uh, and consolidated repertoire. But you also play the guitar as a lighter, more insouciant, more carefree sort of instrument associated especially with dance music. Well, moving on just a little in time and reaching to the apex of the Tudor court, a document of 1559 shows that Queen Elizabeth, no less, received a chest with three gitterns as a New Year's gift. They were put into the care of a groom of the privy chamber and court lutenist Thomas Litchfield. And I think I may have mentioned in a previous lecture, some of you may remember, that when you look at the original document, against the note of the three guitars, there's a little uh, inscription saying, with the queen. And what that means is that Elizabeth had asked, I mean, she'd gone through the list of things that had been given to her as a New Year's Day present, and she'd gone through the list and asked for certain things to be brought to her chamber so that she could inspect them more closely. And as you can imagine, as an enthusiast for guitars, I cherish the image of Elizabeth sitting by the fire, opening her chest of three guitars, perhaps even playing them, who knows? I wouldn't put anything past that woman. An extraordinarily talented person. They were doubtless luxurious instruments, don't you think? You don't give any kind of old thing to the Queen as a New Year's Day present. Anything less than luxurious would have been highly inappropriate. In fact, in 1579, Litchfield, the man who was in charge of giving them to the Queen, himself had given, and I quote, a very fair lute, the backside and neck of mother of pearl, the case of crimson velvet embroidered with flowers and inside green velvet. Well, the gift of three, they were presumably in different sizes. I mean, a set, a chest of guitars, like a chest of vials, implies that the guitar, don't you think, was cultivated in circles around the monarch at Windsor, Greenwich, Hampton Court, and elsewhere, and that the instruments, as I say, could be built in different sizes. This is strikingly confirmed by an inventory of goods that I found in the uh, National Archives, 1563, of the goods at Raby Castle near Durham, belonging to Henry Neville, Earl of Westmoreland. This turned out, when I ordered it up, to be a, a very small piece of paper in an absolutely filthy state. As you can imagine, many of these archives were not looked after until fairly recently, and they exist in such enormous quantities that it often isn't possible to, to clean them or to mount them in a way that makes them you know, ready to be consulted in perpetuity. This was a very, very grimy, small piece of paper in which you could just about perceive in faded writing that there was a case with three gitterns. So it was a case, I'm sure, of three guitars. There's another example of a chest of guitars, presumably in different sizes. 
Given the fact that it is, isn't it, even I have to admit, it is a fairly small instrument, easy to overlook. It's easy to underestimate the ambitions that players could have in their day. The great compositions of Franco-Flemish masters of the 15th and early 16th century, like Josquin Desprez, lie behind much of the music for the, this little guitar, as surely as, surely as, the, image, as, as the churches of Bruges lie in the background of paintings by Flemish masters. So here's a piece taken from a section of counterpoint in a great work by Josquin Desprez, Benedicta is Celorum Regina, and it comes from a print of the 1550s where it's presented without any sense that the guitar has shortcomings that must ultimately defeat the enterprise of extracting material from a work by one of the great composers of the age and simply putting it on the little guitar. now it's 1574 and we find the guitar in use among gentlemen servants at court and in the service of the great. You see, in that year, a writer with the court position, Edward Hellows, groom of the leash, there are these wonderful court positions, of course, that you could hold, some of them sinecure, some of them not, he published a translation of Latin letters by a Spanish prelate. In one of the letters, that original author advises his correspondent you may think this is useful advice. It is not wise to entrust any serious business to amorous young men because, and I quote, they walk hither and thither, peering round the corners of houses, 
lingering about the windows and threshold of their sweethearts with sighs, discreet <coughs> coughs, and songs by night. Well, <laughs> when our man, um, Edward Hellows, came to translate that passage, he decided that this evocation of young men in love needed a guitar. If you will credit me, to men enamored, you shall never commend your business. For their office is not to be occupied in any affairs, but in writing letters, watching at corners, playing on gitterns, climbing on walls, and viewing of windows. Well, I suspect uh, Hallows is thinking of youths in England, perhaps including grooms and other gentlemen in court service like himself. Now, their sources suggest that the guitar could be assigned a place in what we could call court culture. And I think that term conveys rather more than what took place in the chambers and corridors of royal residences during the long summer afternoons or during the winter revels. The culture of the Tudor court comprised everything in the court-centered, elitist, and consensual environment around the monarch with its play as well as its policy, its diversions as well as its deliberations. In such a context, I think there's really nothing and couldn't ever be anything trivial about a new court fashion. Ruler and ruled were bound together as much by their shared understanding of what was pleasant as what was politic. We've come to understand much better, I think, in recent years, partly through the work of people like uh, David Starkey, whom I'm happy to name, how the court worked as a rather intimate, familial household, the importance of personal connections and friendships and shared pleasures. Well, beyond the confines of the court, which you may be happy to leave, we look first to those who were necessarily drawn to it the members of the gentry families that served the crown in some particular capacity, while sustaining a life as landowners, keeping dependents and being uh, people who run a major estate. Well, an early example of this was Sir William Moore, who was a member of parliament at various times for Guildford and holder of many public offices, including Chamberlain of the Exchequer and Justice of the Peace for Surrey. He received Elizabeth, the Queen, at his home at Lowesley House on several occasions where, in fact, his panelled library still survives with a carved overmantel showing the royal arms and initials. Uh, there's also a sombre portrait of him showing him with a white beard and facing a skull, a sharp memento mori, a reminder of death, inviting, of course, an obvious pun on his name, Moore, which it is. Now, he drew up an inventory himself of his goods, and this is the kind of document that I mentioned to you last week, which I find particularly uh, moving as well as interesting, where you are able, as it were, almost to walk through the house of a Tudor person, picking stuff up, looking at it, and putting it back down again. And I say, in 1556, he made an entry of his own uh, parlour. And what's in it? Well, there was a portrait of Henry VIII. There were hangings of green silk, a chessboard, various items of furniture, virginals, a bass lute, and a guitarn, or that is a guitar, that he valued at eight shillings, which is a lot of money, isn't it, for that time? And the kind of price, perhaps, that's only explicable in terms of exotic woods inlay, like ebony and decoration. 
Now, with his substantial library of classical texts and his collection of verse in English and Italian, Moore was a mid-Tudor gentleman, I think, of some considerable scope, witnessed further by the decorative panels alla antica that he possessed, made in the best Anglo-Florentine taste of that particular time. He really is someone to be reckoned with, and he had a guitar. Another owner in high royal service was Richard Worsley of Appledurkham, captain of the Isle of Wight, and therefore, as you can imagine, responsible for a very sensitive area of the realm's defences at Portsmouth and the Channel Islands. When he died in 1565, officials came to his mansion on the Isle of Wight to inventory his goods, but it wasn't going to be a quick affair. He was a person of consequence, as I say, but somewhat overshadowed by the man whom his widow had immediately chosen to be her next husband, which was none other than Elizabeth spymaster Francis Walsingham. Walsingham was a man who, if his property, or if property coming to him was going to be inventoried, he wanted it to be full, and it was. 22 separate membranes of parchment all sewn together were necessary to make the record satisfactory to all parties of Worsley's many possessions. And on your handout, you do in fact have an image taken, I must admit, in a rather informal manner when I went to the Isle of Wight Record Office. It's on page four. I apologize for the rather curious angle. That's not meant to be an arty photograph. It's all I could manage with my computer at the time. And you can see this immense document laid out on the table, and that's only part of it. There is, of course, much more all rolled up, as you can see on the right-hand side. It's a really massive document. A section of it entitled Apparel and Stuff that Were in Diverse Places. You can see sometimes these clerks got rather lazy in their work. Apparel and stuff that was in diverse places. Includes various musical instruments. There was an old pair of virginals. There was a, 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 a cologne, that's to say a cologne lute, with a case, lock and key, valued at 10 shillings, and a guitar. A guitar worth five. Now the case of Sir William Peter... Died, who died in 1572, whose son, of course, went on to be a patron of the composer William Byrd, is particularly interesting, I think. Peter was the son of a Devon tanner who rose to become a senior figure in the government under four monarchs, serving, for example, as senior secretary to the Privy Council during his later years, and he's one of the best documented members of this high-ranking group of guitar owners. There's a book of accounts kept by Peter's London steward and now in the Essex County Record Office where I saw it. And it records a payment for a vial and some accessories on 11th of June, 1550, together with a guitar. And I think you do have that also on your handout. Yes, you do. You've got for a small vial, 13 shillings and fourpence. For a gittin, that's the guitar, six shillings. For a canvas bag to put the vial in, fourpence for vial strings, a shilling, and then, I'm going to pursue this a bit, for the Frenchman's charges. Well, you can see that the guitar was considerably less expensive than the vial, something with which a friend of mine who's present, who's an expert on the Tudor vial, no doubt thinks he's absolutely appropriate and quite correct. The guitar was a lot cheaper than the vial. Um, but nonetheless, what Peter pay paid for the vial amounts to half of what he paid some of his servants for an entire quarter. So it wasn't a, ne this was a Ingotston. So it wasn't a negligible sum. 
The instrument was perhaps a present for his wife, whose, name was Anne, whose maiden name was Anne Brown, for one of his daughters, or indeed for that matter, Peter may have wanted it. The name is spelt Petri, by the way, P-E-T-R-E, but pronounced Peter. Maybe he wanted it for himself. Whatever the case may be, that payment for the Frenchman's charges is kind of interesting, don't you think? Another set of accounts kept by the steward at Ingotston shows that the Frenchman was no mere courier. There's a wage list for 18th of October, 1550, which gives the payments due to a wide range of dependents and servants, from a, a curate to a cart boy. And here the Frenchman appears again, but now he's named and he's clearly a musician. You haven't got this on the handout. To John the Frenchman that playeth on the instruments ten shillings. Well, this John, you can chase him, or Jean, presumably, this Frenchman, you can chase him through the accounts, as you can imagine, keep turning the pages, and he keeps turning up. So from that, I know that he resided in Peter's household since at least mid-June, and was still there in mid-November. So he's, he's in service when the accounts record the purchase of his new shoes. And the significance of all this emerges from Peter's London account book, as you can imagine, of course he had a London house, for the period from 22nd of April, I'll be quite precise, to 19th of May, 1550 just before the record of the purchase of the Gitterne. There is, in fact, nothing in the accounts. And the reason for that is that Peter had gone to France. He sailed on 23rd of April, his second trip that year, and met the French court at Amiens. He left home on or about 12th of May. I don't think, well, I can't prove it, of course, but I don't think it's any coincidence that Peter acquired his Gitterne so soon after the second of his two diplomatic journeys to France in 1550. I suspect, in fact, that he bought it there and thought that here's an instrument which will allow me, as it were, to carry home a French dance band in my saddlebag. And he bought one. So here now are two pieces drawn from French prints published not long after the time of Peter's diplomatic mission. The first is a freely composed fantasy, while the second is a dance. As I say, here was music to show Peter that he really could carry that dance band home.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, I leave you with just one further example of guitar ownership, and one that is, for me, amongst really the most curious. The year is 1562 for this, and the man's name is Francis Saunders, and he's a prisoner in the Tower of London, as you know. In the Tudor period, that really is somewhere you do not want to be. But he was allowed to take a guitar into his cell while a prisoner and to play there during his captivity, which seems extraordinary, but it's all there in a document written out by the keeper of the cells and by the, uh, the warden of the tower writing to the Queen's secretary, Sir William Cecil, and the warden jokes that the tower lieutenant shall be fain to take the sound of Saunders' gittern for payment for his food and fuel. Well, but Saunders didn't have any money, but he did have a guitar to play. Well, that may be humour of a kind, possibly indeed gallows humour. We don't know really what happened to Saunders, but it didn't go well for many people once they got into the Tower of London. But it's no more, perhaps, light-hearted than we would expect from a man who administered the most ominous of all the Tudor fortresses. And even there, it seems, the guitar could be some consolation. Thank you very much.